The message this morning is titled, Christmas According to John. And some people are going to look at those verses that are our text, and they're going to say, the preacher's lost his mind. Amen. <laughs> and that's not debatable. It is true. But they're going to say, you know, there's no mention of Bethlehem, and there's no mention of angels and shepherds and a star. And you're right. But John talks about what I think is the meaning of Christmas as we look at these verses. We're going to read the first five verses and then we're going to skip to verse 10 and read verse through verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There are many miracles in the Bible, things that only God can do. And if you just read through the scripture, you can start with creation. <laughs> that is a miracle in and of itself, isn't it? And you can go all the way through the book of Revelation, and as you do that, you'll find that God is not limited for example, you look at Israel's deliverance from Egypt and how God got them out of Egypt and then how God parted the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea and then God provided for them when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and took care of his people. You can go on to the New Testament and you can see the blind made to see, the deaf made to hear, the lame made to walk. You can see people raised from the dead. These are all miracles of God. But the greatest miracle that God has performed is this, and it's found in verse 14, that he robed himself in human flesh, folks. And he came to this earth. He became a man. He walked among men for approximately 33 and a half years. And then, coming in the flesh, to pay the ransom for mankind's sin, he willingly went to the cross and gave himself there as a sacrifice for sin. I believe that's the greatest miracle we read in the Word of God. God's always on time. God is never one second too early. He's never one second too late. He is always on time. You know, he told Noah to build an ark. And Noah obeyed, and Noah built an ark, but God said, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. And then in his own time... God sent the rain. He opened up the fountains of the deep and he opened up the windows of heaven and this earth was flooded just like he told Noah. Abraham and Sarah were promised a son. And what happened? In his own time, okay, God provided them with a son named Isaac. Israel was told to serve God and God said he would bless them when they served him and he would curse them when they didn't serve them and just the way God had said it happened. And then in the fourth chapter of Galatians, through the Apostle Paul, 
God said this of the birth of Jesus, in the, and this is important to note, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son. When time was just right, that's what fullness means. It means completion. When the time was just right, you know, Roman rule was the rule of the day. Caesar Augustus sat in rule. And Caesar Augustus made a proclamation that everybody should go to their hometown and be taxed. And Joseph, the scripture tells us, because he was of the house and lineage of David, had to go where? He had to go to Bethlehem. We just sang, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Well, what had the scripture said in the book of Micah? Thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou art little among the thousands of Judah, out of he shall he come. And so just as God had prophesied, it happened, the birth of Jesus took place on time, in time, in the right place. We're giving, given a revelation of the living God in what we call the Christmas story, aren't we? We see Jesus being born and we see him growing up as we study the Gospels and we see him going to manhood and eventually going to the cross. But again, I don't think any have done more than John has done to reveal the essence of Christmas here in this first chapter of the book of John. John details the heart of Christmas in what we call the gospel story of Christmas. He presents Jesus in a very forthright manner. He shows Jesus to be just who he said he was. And he presents Jesus as Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? God with us. And God came down to this earth and he took on human form. And he, yes, was born in a manger. But that's not where the story ends. And aren't you thankful that that's not where the story ends? Amen. Jesus was fully God. And Jesus was fully man. You say, I don't understand. That's okay, I don't either. <laughs> you know, there are things that God does that you and I do not understand how he does it, but he is God, we are not, and we can't understand everything. That's where faith comes in. We trust God and we trust his word. But John shares three simple truths about what we call Christmas in these verses, and I want to share those with you this morning as our Christmas message. First of all, God became one of us. Think about that. God became one of us. The scripture says, and the word was made flesh. And in verse one, what does he say? And the word was with God and the word what? Was God. God became flesh. Verse 14 identifies who the word is, doesn't it? And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so we know who he's talking about when he presents these verses. He's identifying the word as, look at verse 7, the one who John said that John the Baptist came to bear witness of. And he came to bear witness of the Lord Jesus. Verse 10, he was the one who was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He is the one who came unto his own and his own received him not. Jesus did not cease to be God when he robed himself in human flesh. We know that Jesus is what we refer to, who we refer to as the second person of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a unique person. He was all God. He was all man. He was the God-man. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we're told this. 
talking about Jesus. Remember the apostle Paul had said in verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And in verses six and seven, he says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. In other words, he said, Jesus didn't think that being equal with God was something to be held on to at the cost of the souls of men. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. No child of God should ever shrink from declaring that Jesus Christ is God. He is the one who became flesh and walked among mankind. John's choice of words here is the strongest possible. Remember, he's writing, obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's the strongest construction that could be for stating that the Word is God. He said, in the beginning, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The name God without the definite article there refers to his character. It refers to his nature. Jesus, the Word who came into this world, was all God. He was totally deity. And he came to this earth to share in our frailty as human beings. Because the scripture says he became obedient to God the Father. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Who in their wildest imagination, just think about this. Who in their wildest imagination could conceive that God would become as one of his creatures? He made himself in the form of Jesus reliant upon a woman and depended upon her as the babe in the manger and then as he grew to manhood, depended upon her to care for his needs. He submitted himself to the instruction of a man. Joseph was presumed to be the father and so he, Jesus was obedient to Joseph. He listened to his instruction and learned how to make such mundane things as yokes and possibly chairs and tables and things like that in the carpenter shop there in Nazareth. He knew what it was like to experience exhaustion, thirst, and hunger. Experiences that you and I experience in the flesh. He knew what it was like to be grieved. He knew what it was like to suffer rejection even by his own people and to go to experience unfulfilled longing. His heart was broken by his rejection by his own people, Israel. He came unto his own, the scripture says, and his own received him not. He sorrowed over the choices some people made. Remember the rich young ruler who came to him and Jesus told him how to have eternal life and the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he had great riches and he wasn't going to do those things that Jesus said and it broke the heart of the Lord to see this young ruler make that decision. He wept with Martha and Mary over the death of her brother Lazarus. He experienced all of the things that we experienced. He sat and he wept over the city of Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I would have taken you under my wings as a hen doth her chicks, but ye would not. He wept over this city that he wanted to spare and that he could spare from the consequences of their actions. And they didn't want to hear what he had to say. This is a mystery of love, folks, that you and I have difficulty understanding, but our Lord experiences those things when he came to earth in this fleshly body. And over in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews, the second chapter, beginning in verse 14, God gives us insight into his purpose in the act of becoming mankind. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. 
For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath power of death, and that is the devil. The sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary, Satan thought was a victory for Satan, but it was the defeat for Satan. Remember what God had told Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and Calvary and, and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus was the crushing of the head of Satan. But he continues, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He's saying God came in human form he came to that manger in Bethlehem. He lived in Nazareth, obedient to his parents, the scripture says, as he grew up. And he did it for the purpose of becoming the sacrifice for our sin. And so we have the marvel of Christmas. That at a given point in time, that when the fullness of the time had come, the word of God being made flesh, being fully God and being fully man, came and became a man upon this earth. But here's the second truth that John gives us in these verses. God came near to us. God came near to us. There are people that view God as unreachable, as unapproachable. And yet the Word of God tells us that God came near to us and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is an interesting word because it means to tent or to tabernacle. Somebody said it this way, God came to this earth and tabernacled among men. God came to this earth and tented among men. It speaks of what some call the transient nature of the body that Jesus took on during his time upon this earth. You know, Jesus didn't stay in a fleshly body. After his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, he appeared again, but he appeared in a glorified body. He was not born to remain forever in the form of this flesh. And you know what that gives us? That gives us hope that one of these, we're going to put off this flesh. But the scripture says we're going to have a body like unto his body, which is that glorified body, and we can't wait for that day to come. But he, what does this have to do with God being approachable and receiving us into his presence? Well, let's just go back for a moment. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Before the law was given, how did men approach God? Well, they approached him through sacrifices. Those sacrifices were presented upon an altar. And sometimes those altars and those sacrifices were filled with dread and filled with great fear. If you'll think about Abraham in the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis. Abraham made a sacrifice to God, presented it upon the altar, and the scripture says a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. Here he was making a sacrifice to God, and God put him to sleep, and this great horror fell upon him. And what was the purpose of it? And I like what somebody pointed out. It was to strike some awe into the heart of Abraham. This man who had been an idol worshiper in the earth of Chaldees to put an awe into him that he might possess within him a holy reverence for the things of God. You know what? When we come into the worship of God, there ought to be a certain holy reverence 
and awe in the hearts of God's people today. You know, the saying is that familiarity breeds contempt. And I think sometimes we just get so familiar with coming in to worship God and coming into the worship services and it's something we do every week and we're just so familiar with it that many times it loses its special nature. But every time we have the opportunity to assemble together and to worship God in spirit and in truth ought to be thrilling to us and ought to fill us with a certain awe, a certain reverence of the God who's given us the ability, given us the opportunity given us a, a land in which we can freely come together like this and meet and worship Him. In the 28th chapter of the book of Genesis, Jacob was spending the night at Bethel. I like Bethel. That's a good name, isn't it? Amen. We know what Bethel means. Beth means house. El means God. Bethel, house of God. And Jacob was spending the night there at Bethel. It used to be called Luz, and Jacob changed the name of it to Bethel, and so he's spending the night there and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And the scripture says he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Oh, how I want when people come in here and into these services and sit under the preaching the word of God and singing the songs of praise to God that people say, surely this is the house of God. Surely this is one of the Lord's churches. And so the places that men would meet with God inevitably became places of fear and reverence because that's where the Most High God revealed himself. Amen. We do it today through his word and through the preaching of his word. And I think some of God's people today just need to wake up out of their sleep and realize that church is a place where we can go and meet with God. We can meet with Him. We can walk with Him on a daily basis, but in a very special way, God is with His people when we gather together to worship Him in this capacity that we're in today. What well, to recognize this is none other but the house of God. Under the law, Moses built a tabernacle, didn't he? At the instruction of God, Moses built a tabernacle. It was a tent. It was a tent where God would come down and God would meet through the intermediacy of a high priest. You know, they had an order of priests and they had a high priest. But the presence of God in that place made it a place of dread and a place of awe. You know, we're, again, all too familiar, I'm afraid, with the thought of meeting together with God today. In the Old Testament days, and even into the days of the New Testament, being in the presence of God and, and seeing God work many times brought fear. If you read in the book of Acts, when God did certain things there in the church at Jerusalem, as a matter of fact, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, when they tried to lie to God or try to lie to the church, what happened? God struck them dead. Amen. And you know what the scripture says? Great fear came upon all the church. Maybe we need some great fear. I'm not going to ask God to strike anybody down, by the way. Maybe we need some great fear of God and reverence of God in the Lord's churches today. But he built the tabernacle and it had the holy place, but it was separated from the most holy place. And the most holy place was where only the high priest could go, but he could only go once a year and he could only go with the blood of atonement. He was going into the presence of God. It's significant whenever God was resident in that 
holy place that a cloud stood over the tabernacle. And it was an awesome and terrifying approach to God. Solomon built the temple. And Solomon's temple that he built, that first temple became the place for worshipers, but it was a place that inspired the same awe, the same reverence, the same dread that these other talked about. And Solomon, upon the completion of the temple, offered up a prayer of dedication. And in that prayer of dedication, listen to what he says. and Listen to what happens. When he was finished praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Folks, I want the glory of the Lord to fill this house. I want it to be obvious that the glory of the Lord is present in this place. You know, we're not the biggest, fanciest, nicest, newest church in town, but I can tell you we can be the closest to God in town, and His presence can be obvious in this place. But it says the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, maybe we need some fire in the pulpit today, right? The fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good for his mercy endure forever. God demonstrated his power in that house in that temple, and the people could not help but bow themselves before God. You know, by the time the Romans attacked Jerusalem in about 70 AD, Titus and some of the other Roman leaders went into that temple, and they were not filled with awe, and they were not filled with dread. And you know why? You just think back to the book of Ezekiel, something had happened in that place. In fact, Ezekiel says it this way, Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. And this must have been a frightening sight that Ezekiel saw. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted from the earth in my sight. They're in that holy, holiest place. The cherubims just lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth, and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. You know, there's only one thing that, to me that is more dreadful than being in the presence of the Lord. And you know what that is? To see the glory of the Lord depart a church. I don't think there's anything sadder than seeing the glory of the Lord depart a church, a church that has been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's another vital aspect of God coming to man. Here's another vital aspect of God with us. And that is this. The initiative of man and God meeting together comes from God, not from man. The initiative of God and man being together comes from God and not from man. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 6. We're familiar with that verse. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father. How? But by me. There's only one way to God. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy chapter 2, for there's one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. You'll come to God through Jesus or you won't come to God, folks. That's what the Word of God says. That's what Jesus Himself said. We have people trying to come to God in all kinds of ways today. 
We have people trying to come to God through works. We have people trying to come to God through church membership, through various different things. But there's only one way to God, and that is repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And in fact, what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44 is this, and he revealed that God's the initiator of salvation when he did it. He said, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. The initiative lies with God. You know what this drawing is? No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw. You know what the drawing is? I believe it's the wooing of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A child of God who has a love for souls, witnesses to someone that is lost. They show them from the Word of God. They show them with their own lives and their own testimony, their lost condition, their need of Christ, and the Holy Spirit begins to work on that heart. So a lot of times what we've had in the past is folks who are saved trying to do the Holy Spirit's job and work on the heart, and you can't do that. Amen. Only the Holy Spirit can do the Holy Spirit's job. What is our job as children of God? It's to be witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness just stands on the stand, you know, if he's in court, and he tells what he knows to be true. He tells what he has seen. He tells what he has heard. He tells what he has experienced. I've shared with you, I've been a witness in different situations before, and you stand there, and I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. And then you stand there, and you tell what you know to be true. Well, that's all we... See, the prosecutor does the prosecuting. The judge makes the decision... Well, I'm not the prosecutor. You're not the prosecutor. We're the witnesses. And the Holy Spirit will prosecute that heart. The Holy Spirit will convict that heart. God is ultimately the judge. You know why we're not seeing great numbers of people saved today? I shared this with the Sunday school class this morning. And it's a sad fact. It's a sad statistic. But folks, you realize... Because we know that a child that dies before he reaches or she reaches the age of accountability goes into the presence of God. They're safe under the blood of Jesus. And I said, you realize that abortionists are sending more people to heaven today than God's people are? Amen. And that's not a good thing. You know why we're not seeing great numbers of people saved today? It's not the Holy Spirit's fault. Holy Spirit wants to do His job. The Holy Spirit will do His job. But we don't have great numbers of believers witnessing to people today. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't get to do His job like He wants to do His job in convicting the hearts of people that we've witnessed to. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came into this world to seek and to save those who didn't know him as Savior. Isaiah 65 verse 1, God said this, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. Romans chapter 3, we just covered this this morning in Sunday school, but it says there's none that seeketh God. The initiative for God being with man and man coming to God lies with God. We didn't seek God, but God entering the world through a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. We remember, we think about the little baby this time of year, but that baby grew up and that baby went to the cross and God came that he might rescue man from everlasting 
separation from him. So first of all, God became one of us. Secondly, we see that God is with us and invites us into his, a relationship with him. And thirdly, here's what John reveals to us, that God revealed his glory to us. And we beheld his glory, the scripture says, as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the third great truth that John gives us. Because the word was made flesh, because the word dwelt among us, we have a marvelous witness of the glory. He said we beheld his glory. That word beheld has the idea of perceiving. Now you and I can't really perceive the glory of God, can we? You know, we read about God and that no man can approach God. You know, sin can't come into God's presence without being destroyed. And we try to imagine, you know, what did Moses see when God put his hand over him while he passed by, had him hidden in the cleft of the rock and God passed by. And then all Moses saw was the glory trail that followed after God passed by and his face just lit up and shone for 40 days after that. So he had to wear a veil over it. What did Moses see? We can't even imagine that. But Jesus said at one point, John chapter 14, he said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We can get a glimpse of the glory of God. The idea of beheld talks about consideration. It talks about contemplation. John is providing a strong statement about the veracity of his observations and the accuracy of his conclusions <laughs> that the word that became flesh and dwelt among us is indeed God. Can you dare say, and can I dare say that we can imagine in our wildest imaginations what John saw when he looked upon Jesus? John's word reveals that he was impressed with his glory. When we talk about glory of someone, we usually talk about what's going to bring them praise, what's going to honor them. Since we're talking about the word, we're talking about the things that bring honor and praise to the Lord Jesus. And John's talking about the presence and the power of Jesus Christ when he talks about his glory. You know, in Matthew chapter 17, we can read about Jesus taking Peter and James and John up into the mountain and being transfigured before them. I like that word transfigured. There's a couple of words that are similarly translated in the King James. One of them is translated transformed and it's over in the book of 2 Corinthians where the scripture says that Satan has transformed himself into an angel of light. That just means basically he's wearing a mask. He pretends to be of God and he's not. And it says he has his preachers that pretend to be of God and they're not. But here we're talking about being transfigured. And that word transfigured, if I had to just give a very literal day-to-day -day meaning of it, it's this. Jesus let what was on the inside come out. Remember, we said he clothed his glory, the glory that he was, the glory of God. He clothed that in human flesh. He robed that in human flesh. But he takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and he just, in essence, pulls back that robe of flesh. And they see the glory of God. And they were left speechless. They didn't know what to say. In fact, Peter said some things he shouldn't have said. And so uh, 
that was taken care of by the Lord. But no doubt the brilliance of the person of Jesus when he transformed himself or transfigured himself was awe-inspiring to his disciples. In fact, what happened was later on, Peter wrote about that in 2 Peter chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17. He says that he and the others were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he hath received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter saw the glory of God. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? They said, we seek Jesus. And what did he say? I know we read in the, the scriptures, it said, I am he. Literally, he said, I am. Now, what's significant about the word I am, the words I am? That's the way God said he'd be known to his children. The I am, the great I am. So Jesus said, I am. And for just that long, he pulled back the flesh. He let the glory of God shine through. And what happened to those people who had come to arrest him? They fell backwards. Man cannot stand before the glory of God. John was impressed by the glory of God. He was impressed by the uniqueness of Jesus. He calls him the only begotten son of God. That phrase only begotten means only born the only born one, the sole one. Here's what John is saying. There has never been nor shall there ever be another like this one and only son of God. There's only been one Jesus, folks. And listen, when you start changing the picture of Jesus, you create another Jesus that God doesn't recognize. Amen. That's what Paul said. He said, there'll be somebody come and preach to you another Jesus, which is not the Jesus we preach to, he said, don't listen to them. I tell you what, somebody comes and preaches a message other than the one that the word of God preaches. They start talking about another Jesus that requires baptism to be saved. They talk about another Jesus that requires good works to stay saved. They're changing the image of Jesus. God only had one son. He is the only begotten son of God. Verse 18 John says, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. I like one of the meanings of this word declared. It means unfolded. Think about that. Jesus unfolded God to us. And we see the love of God in the love of Jesus. We see the mercy of God in the heart and the love of Jesus. I said a moment ago, Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image or the pushed out image of his person. John was impressed by the uniqueness, but he also impressed by the person of Jesus. He said he was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. Grace is defined as undeserved love. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Grace is a gift. It is unmerited favor. It is God's mercy being extended to us without the thought of man's abilities or inabilities. When you just do something because of your love for them, folks, that's grace. And God's grace and God's love are not predicated upon any condition that man can ever attain. Truth is literally veracity, the essence of verity. What John is saying in the life of Jesus is it was truth. I wonder how many people in our world today could say that my life is total truth. 
my life is total truth. What you see, you know, the old saying, what you see is what you get. And it's just total truth. So many of us, and I will say us, want to hide sometimes. Don't we? Hide the, all of the truth. You know, I, I'll let you know about me what I want you to know about me, right? But Jesus was total truth. And only one person has ever walked on this earth whose life characterized truth. And that was the Word of God, the living Word, Jesus Christ. And then John says this of him. We're getting ready to close. But John says he was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Full means replete. Covered over. Complete. You want complete grace and you want complete truth. You will find it only in Jesus Christ. God became man and identified himself, I said a moment ago, with our frailties. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That word infirmities means frailties. But was what? But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. It's a comfort when you're tempted to know that you have an advocate, that you have a defense attorney by the name of Jesus who has been tempted in all three of those points, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, just like you're being tempted. He didn't sin, and so he can make intercession for you, and he can make intercession for me. He has demonstrated through his life that he can be approached. He's the mediator again between man and God. And he issued an invitation. He said, come unto me all you that labor are heavy laden. And so he issued the invitation. He was scrutinized. He was analyzed. He was made to agonize. What they learned was after the examination was complete was that he was just who he said he was. He was and is the very Son of God. He was Emmanuel. He is and was God in human form. So as we observe Christmas this year, let's not forget what it's all about. It's not just about a baby being born in a manger. It's not about trees and lights and Santa Claus and gifts and those things are fun in their place. Family gatherings, those things are nice. But Christmas is about the Savior of mankind coming into this world and doing it willingly. You know, without the cross, the manger would have been of very little significance. Babies were being born all the time all over Judea. And so without the cross, the manger really wouldn't have mattered much. But Jesus came and revealed the glory of God as of the only begotten of the Father. And now, see, here's how this applies to us as a church and as individuals. We have a responsibility today. We live in a dark, dimly lit world. Brother Rick talked a few moments ago about a family up in the north that somebody, and, and they don't know the reason, somebody just came into their house and began shooting. They're family members. No reason given. No expectation of it. It just happened. We live in a dark, dimly lit world. But see, there's still light in this world. Who is the light? Well, Jesus is the light, yes. But what did he say to us as his people? Ye are the light of the world. See, we're supposed to shine the glory of God 
and the light of God to a lost and dying world. And I can't think of a better time than to do it than at Christmas time when people's minds are drawn maybe to Bethlehem, maybe so many are drawn away. You know, we now you don't hear Merry Christmas anymore. What do you hear? Happy Holidays, you know, things like that. We need to get back to telling people Merry Christmas so they'll understand we still believe in the Christ who came and died for mankind Amen. that we might have everlasting life.